Hello, hello, mic check, mic check, one, two. Is everybody here? No? All right, well, I'm going anyway. Um, if you haven't seen that, uh, it's a great monologue filled with a lot of profanity. But if you've been in the um, secular sales world, the monologue that Alec Baldwin pulls off in Glenn, Glenn Ross, Glenn Gary is... Uh, it's absolute gold. In fact, everyone I've ever met who's been in business uh, is aware of that scene, and we share some wild chuckles over that thing. Coffee is for closers. Put that coffee down. Well, guess what, Alec Baldwin? Guess what I'm holding in my left hand? I'm holding a piping hot uh, double brewed Nespresso cup of coffee, so that must mean I'm a closer. Good morning, long time no chat. Muthanomics uh, podcast back in the saddle, um, and I'm just straightforward, very straightforwardly calling this episode more valuable than stonks and crypto. <laughs> and you go, what? What's more valuable than stonks and crypto? Um, it has been an interesting year and a half. Um, a year that saw a global scandemic <clears throat> pandemic um, sweep over the entire globe, um, shutting down economies, locking people in their houses, forcing them to wear face diapers, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And then the Federal Reserve backed their massive printing press up to the doors of Wall Street and turned it on burr mode just just printing it telling them to buy stocks left and right and lo and behold we have at least on paper and on digital charts we have a massive stock market recovery um, which is clearly not based in the fundamentals of actually companies being profitable um, because if you look through a lot of these companies uh they did not make money during the pandemic. Now, with that said, a lot of virtual companies, Zoom, Peloton, etc., um, their business models fit people being chained in their homes for the better part of 12 months. So their stock prices did amazing. Um, Peloton has been coming down the last three months because everybody was like, oh, geez, if the economy opens... Um, then Peloton is, no one's going to be at home doing Peloton, so their stock's going to crash. And so it's been coming down, I think it was at a high of like 140-something per share. Um, and it's, it started in in the 10 range, um, 8, 10, 12 bucks, uh, before it went on a massive tear up to, I think it was 140-something. In fact, I can pull that up in my nice, fancy... Piton. What is Piton? Piton. Yeah, Piton. Um, it's. Let me go back. It was down. Okay, so it's low. Was seventeen dollars and seventy cents back in March when uh, we were at the trough when all the shutdowns, the panic was gripping everything, and then it topped out in January at $171.09. So that's roughly a tenfold move, so a thousand percent on that. And then by, let's see here, by May 3rd, it was down to 8147 
So it lost 50% of its value, over 50% of its value between January and May when everybody was saying, oh no, no one's gonna be stuck at home riding bikes connected through the interwebs. Um, but what's interesting is this week it has gone from a buck eight to a buck 27. And you go, well, why would it go up that much? Well, the Delta variant, everybody's crapping their shorts about the Delta variant killing everybody now. So they're like, oh, if the Delta variant scares people, then people will stay at home and ride their bikes. Pedal harder. So we saw this with a lot of stuff. Um, Dave Portnoy's company, um, Penn, well, his, his company's uh, Barstool Sports, but they, they inked a deal with Penn National Gaming. And uh, I actually looked at buying them back in the day, but I, it was hard for me to get behind gambling. Um, my Judeo-Christian patriarchal ethics <laughs> uh, it was not... My conscience wouldn't allow me to make uh, money off of a gambling vice, but they, were, they hit a low of $3.75 back in March. And that particular stonk topped out at $142 in uh, in March of this year. So $3.75 March 2020 to $142 March 2021. Um, so I attribute that to Dave Portnoy's marketing genius and his ability to, quote, influence the retail bros, end quote. Um and his his self-proclaimed group of of boneheads that follow him he calls them stoolies for barstool sports um anyway i've been reading a couple things about about penn national gaming that that portnoy single-handedly trapped an entire generation of millennials and gen zers um into bag holding penn penn national gaming stock at 140 plus a share, and it has just ski sloped ever since um, closed. It was all the way down uh, to 63 bucks this last week, and it has recovered with the Delta scare to 69. Because what doesn't scream economic productivity more than a bunch of unemployed 20 late 20 to early 30 something year old men sitting on a couch tapping buttons? gambling on professional sports activities um yeah that that sounds like it's got strong future uh for our country written all over it but apparently it's up 10 percent since the delta scare so a lot of these virtual things with the delta scare are starting to come back um but you're asking why am i calling this thing more valuable than stonks and crypto um, and the answer to me seems pretty obvious. And if you hear noises upstairs, um, we got a packed house of, uh, of teenagers and soon to be college students living in our house. So they're stomping around getting ready for the day. Um, I thought you recorded this on Saturdays. Well, sometimes I record it during the middle of the week and then pretend like it's on a Saturday. You're a deceiver. Um, so should I just get right to it or should I beat around the bush? Um, 
what's more valuable than stonks and crypto? All you have to do is look around the the society at large, different segments of the society over the last year and a half, and you will discover that there are people making a grip load of money based on their perceived level of victimhood. And, you know, we talk a lot about dealing with with new digital currencies and new digital payment apps, Venmo and PayPal. PayPal's old. Uh, Zelle banking, SoFi is one of those, you know, future digital things. Uh, Coinbase went public. Um, Dogecoin, which my son tried to get me to buy. I think I've shared this before, um, but I didn't. And then it went up like 10,000%. Um, you know, there's there's a lot of a lot of volatility, which I actually think is good. Volatility creates opportunities. It also can um, permanently, well, not permanently. Nothing's permanent. Only quitting is permanent. Failure is just a temporary setback and an opportunity to learn some lessons. But when you look around the landscape, you know we we are valuing. Um, we are valuing victimhood. We are assigning more value to victimhood than we are other things. And we're actually beginning to trade in victimhood. So the currency of choice, here comes some clompy footsteps down the stairs. You taking off, bud? Yeah. Be safe. And if they, if they tell you that they can't use that, ask to speak to a supervisor. Close the door gently. Love you. Bye. Um, if you're wondering what that was all about, our uh, oldest son is attempting to get a Georgia, Georgia driver's license. And the last time he went, the lady at the counter um, told him that she could not use his particular copy of the birth certificate because it wasn't original. And he said, well, I don't have the original. Um, this is... A, an official copy signed, sealed, and delivered from the state in which he was born. Um, and she didn't know how to deal with that. So he left and uh, came home and was not successful. So he's going back today um, with a little bit more documentation. Um, but it's hilarious. It's like uh, it has the official stamp on it. It's like watermarked. It's signed by the governor of the state um so yeah all those all those uh stereotypes about dmv workers remember i don't know if you've seen that movie whatever it was with the sloths at the dmv i don't think that was pets that wasn't pets that was that was some movie some other pixar slash disney slash some animated entity um there was like fast foxes and rabbits and I can't remember the name of it. Anyway, there's the famous scene of the DMV worker at the sloth, and he's moving in like super, 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 like 50,000 frames a second slow motion. There's a reason those stereotypes exist. They are um, bureaucrats, unelected bureaucrats. They survive um, by being the problem. That's how their livelihood is insured, is to be the clog in the pipe. Um, 
Because if you just poured some Drano down there and broke it up or bought a snake, plumber snake, and wound it down the pipe, broke up that clog, uh, it would run efficiently, um, but they are the clog. So, you're so mean. You're equating unelected government bureaucrat workers to clogs in sewage. Um, I'm just trying to... Yeah, maybe I am. Maybe I am. It's It's an efficiency game, people, and... And unelected government bureaucrats, they ensure their livelihood by being the problem themselves. <laughs> so our son, our, our oldest son, is, is navigating the bureaucracy of um, trying to do something as simple as getting a driver's license um, in the particular state that we are now residing in. So maybe, you know what, I bet if he got on TikTok or Instagram or, you know, some platform and started uh, wailing about the victimhood of how he's being discriminated against because he's seven feet tall and blah, 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 he might be able to pick up a following. I'm sure there's people that'd be like, bro, shut up. Um, but there'd be people who would, you know, contribute to his GoFundMe campaign and the, you know, oh, the emotional trauma that I experienced when they told me the, you know, get on my knees so I'd fit inside the camera frame. It was discrimination. It was heightism. And you go and you say, well, no, clearly that's absurd. Like n nobody who has, is blessed with seven feet worth of height and dashingly good looks from his father um, a charming personality, uh, perfectly straightened teeth, courtesy of his parents spending thousands of dollars on orthodontia. <laughs> Surely he's not going to play the victim card. Only people who play the victim card are like, you know, people who, you know, got hit by a drunk driver and are paraplegic or someone who was you know, the unfortunate victim of a violent crime um, and they, you know, that they're suffering and the suffering was not at their own hands. It was the random result of some monster doing something terrible to them. Only those types of people are going to play the victim card. I don't know what you're talking about, Muth. You've lost your mind. This whole idea of currency being, this victim currency being more valuable than stonks and crypto you're out to lunch, bro. Well, I'm not. I'm not at all. All you have to do is look at Naomi Osaka for crying out loud. Actually, we won't even start at Naomi Osaka because she's, she's, this is trickle down economics. This is Reaganomics part two. But instead of the trickle down coming from the top with, you know, hey, if we give the elite trillions of dollars, um, to do whatever the heck they want to do with it, then all of that money will trickle down and the peasants will get a few pennies. Um, it's 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 trickle-down economics part two, 2.0, but instead of giving the elites trillions and trillions of dollar bills to trickle down to us poor folk, we're giving elites somehow, and I don't understand even how we're doing this, but somehow we're giving elites... We are elevating them to chief victimhood status and then all of the fallout and residual goop that comes from that is trickling down to us peasants. And you go, what are you talking about? 
Case study number one. Um, we were down in Florida at the beginning of summer, and we went down as a family, spent a few days on the beach, uh, you know, just, just your typical, you know, middle, upper middle class, lower middle class, medium middle class, whatever. You know, you take, you, you take some PTO, um, you tell your clients you're going to be gone for four days, and you leave on a Thursday and go to the beach Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and come home Sunday, like that kind of thing. So, you know, we just take a typical American summer vacation to Daytona Beach. And then on the way home, we swing through Central Florida to see the grandparents for a couple days. And I go out to pick up an order um, at Outback Steakhouse. Uh, so I'm sitting in the to-go order line, you know, the curbside to-go thing at Outback. And I'm just waiting for my order to come out. And this lady drives up. And, it, you know, she's in like a 2005 might have been a Toyota Corolla. I mean, it, it, you know, it was a, it was a compact car, you know, ten, probably 15 years old. And she pulls up right beside me and she rolls down the passenger window and she starts honking. And I'm like, oh, okay, what's going on here? Um, either I have a flat tire and she's being a good Samaritan or I'm going to soon be fielding um, some sort of, you know, trumped up hitch. <laughs> It's like, wait a second, wait a second. You, these are these are trumped up charges. These are not real. Um, so you know, I'm going okay. I, I I can be patient enough to field the load of th these trumped up this trumped up story. Um, and I you know I've seen some doozies through my years. Um, there was one guy. Oh, you're getting off track. Well, you know what? If you don't like me to get off track, then just click the stop button. This is sometimes how my brain flows. That's some good coffee, Alec Baldwin. I'm, I'm gonna, I'm bringing this around. I'm closing this up. It's gonna be great. So, probably rewind seven or eight years, and I'm sitting in the a parking lot of IKEA in Tampa. And this guy comes up, knocks on the door, and I roll down the window, and he goes, "Hey, man, uh, yeah, I'm driving this barbecue truck, um, and I've got to deliver this barbecue to the homeless shelter." Um, but I got a flat tire and I, and I need 20 bucks, um, for the tire. And I said, well, what do you need the 20 bucks for? And he's like, well, I got to take it up to the tire shop so they can patch it. And I said, well, hop in the car, bro. I said, where's this tire place at? And he's like, oh, it's just up the street. And I said, well, hop in the car. I'll drive you up there and I'll give the tire place $20. Um, and thankfully the sovereignty of, of the Lord God almighty protected me. Um, from, you know, getting murdered and dumped in a canal somewhere in Tampa because we went on this wild goose chase. <laughs> and, about, and I said, hey, you know, where are you? Oh, just go up, just go up North 21st Street. Just just go north. All right, man. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm shifty and I'm suspicious and I'm watching him in the rear view and I'm like, all right, you know, he tries any, any fast move, this thing's whipping into a telephone pole immediately because he doesn't have his seatbelt on, so... That's my plan for a carjacking. If, they, if they're able to breach the perimeter of the car, I'm gonna make sure that they're not buckled and then I'm just gonna run it straight into a telephone pole. Surprise! Um, it's because the startle flinch exists in everybody. Whoa, this thing's going really crazy off the rails. Uh, what happened? You forget something? Did you take your card? 
So that means you're coming to the bank of El Padre. There you go. Do you know the, don't say the pin because we're on a podcast here. You know the pin? Yeah. It's the one that starts with an eight. Love you, man. Drive safe. It's rainy. Another withdrawal from the bank of El Padre. <laughs> he did work all summer. He did work coaching basketball all summer, and he did he did save up some money. Um, but it is funny how half the time he can't find where he left his debit card. Oh, the games and tales that we weave. So anyway, I'm driving driving north um, on 21st Street in Tampa. And it's just up the street, man. So I get a mile up there. All right, where am I going? Uh, yeah, it's just a little bit farther. All right, so I get two miles. Um, I stop at a red light and I say, uh, yo. No, 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 I was talking about the startle flinch. The reason I crash it into the telephone pole is every human brain is wired with a startle flinch. And unless you've gone through significant focus training to desensitize the startle flinch, we are all vulnerable and uh, susceptible to the startle flinch. And you go, well, what's the startle flinch? Well, it's like you just stand there with your your brother-in-law or I don't have any brothers, so it'd be a brother-in-law. And they like pretend to hit you in the face like you jump back. Or you're sitting there at the barbecue and your brother-in-law chucks a ball, a football at your head, you know, blindsides you and you see it out of your periphery and you jump. That's the startle flinch. Um, and one of the theories in being faced with a choiceless choice is that you flip the tables and you put the startle flinch back on the other person as quickly as possible. So if you're in a choiceless choice, um, and I was reading about this in terms of like mass shootings and things, and oh, it's so morbid. Wait, you know, it, it, it apparently just turn on the news. It's part of the, the culture um, the last several years. But they said if you're in a choiceless choice, throw something at the guy's head because most likely they're going to be, unless there's some, you know, black ops trained, you know, zombie, um, they're susceptible to a startle flinch. So I've been saying that for years that if I ever get carjacked or anybody ever gets carjacked, if they're able to breach the premises of the car um, and I'm not able to uh, exercise my Second Amendment rights in time, let's say. <laughs> I can't believe you referred to it as exercising your Second Amendment rights. Um, yeah, we'll go start a flinch. Make sure they're unbuckled. Telephone pole. Telephone pole, meet carjacker. Anyway, so that's what's going on in this particular scenario. I've got my eye on him. He's sitting in the back seat of the minivan um, in the center seat, and he's not buckled, and I'm just keeping my eye on him. He's not making any shifty moves. But if he does, telephone pole. Um, and so we get to my, and I stop, and I was like, bro, seriously and he's like just sinks his shoulders in shame um all right man sorry yeah I, i'll get out here so he just slides the minivan door open gets out and just disappears into the alley and i was like all right bro see ya um why am i telling that story because fast forward two years down the road i'm at a barnes and noble parking lot in a different part of tampa same dude this is no joke. Right hand on the Bible. Swear this is 100% true. In a Barnes & Noble parking lot, same dude two years later comes up to me. Hey, man, 
uh, I've got this barbecue truck that I'm taking uh, that I need to get to the homeless shelter, but it's got a flat tire, man. I need 20 bucks to take it to the tire place. And I just looked at him. I said, are you serious? And I just got in the car and ignored him. And you go, oh, wow, what a funny dink. <laughs> the story continues. And this is no joke. This is 100% God's honest truth. One week later, down the, down the street from that Barnes & Noble, about a mile, within a mile of that Barnes & Noble, straight down south from that Barnes & Noble, after, it was some school event, I don't remember, track me, middle school track me, ball, some, some game that the kids were doing at the middle school. On the way home, on that particular night, Burger King did 50 cent soft serve cones. Being the uh, frugal monetary policy guy that I am, it's hard for me to turn down a 50 cent ice cream cone for the kids. It's like, I can get four ice cream cones for two bucks. Where do I sign? So we park in the parking lot of this Burger King at like 930 at night to go in to get 50 cent soft serve ice cream cones. Same exact dude comes out of the bushes at me. Hey man. And I just looked at him and I said, let me guess, you got a barbecue truck with a flat tire. And I just said, yeah, no thanks. And I walked inside and my wife was, we got inside. She's like, why were you so mean to that poor guy? He needed help. And I was like, are you kidding me? This is the same scam artist that hit me up two years ago at Ikea last week at Barnes and Noble. And he's still trying to sell the same story. And you can't even tell that you're selling it to the same dude. I'm six foot seven. Like, how do you not put two and two together? Um, so Wow, that's a great story, Muse. How, how funny. It's not over. Within a month, probably within three or four weeks of seeing of that at Burger King episode, the local news channel, Bay News 9, ran a story where they interviewed the the owner of the alleged of the said barbecue company, and he said, Hey, I just want to make the community aware. <laughs> that we've gotten several complaints about one of our alleged employees asking for money to fix a flat tire so, <laughs> so he can deliver barbecue to the homeless shelter. He's like, that guy's not affiliated with us. We have no idea who he is. Don't give him money. Oh my goodness. I was rolling on the floor when I saw that on the news. I was like, dude, that's the guy. And I told my wife, I was like, that's the Burger King scam artist. Oh, geez. So anyway, trickle-down economics. We are, we have, we've given victimhood status more value than stonks and cryptocurrency. And so it trickles down through the society. And you got guys trying to scam people um, for 20 bucks to fix a flat tire to get barbecue to a homeless shelter. Wow. So, um, so anyway... Based on that story um, and other incidences with similar scams, I have a really fun time messing with these people. Um, and you go, oh, that's so mean. What do you mean messing with them? Are you spraying like silly putty on them or silly string? No, just asking them objective, logical questions. Fast forward, vacation, coming back from the beach, stopping in Central Florida to see the grandparents. I'm sitting in an Outback parking lot. Lady pulls up, honks the horn. Two windows go down. My driver's side window, her passenger side window. She starts crying. Oh, excuse me, sir. <laughs> like borderline hysterical. And I'm like, oh, this is a tough one. Like this is a tough acting job going on right now. Um, I, I, I just, I flew in from Arizona for my, 
for my mother's funeral? <laughs> and and I, I don't have enough money for a, a hotel room tonight, so I'm just wondering if maybe you can give me some money to help me with my hotel room. <laughs> so I let her do her thing just like that. It was just like that. And I, and I just looked at her. She looked up at me out of the corner of her eye like, hey, did he buy this thing? Am I going to win an Oscar for this performance, maybe an Emmy? Or am I going to get a Raspberry Award for a terrible performance? And I just looked at her and I said, well, why don't you stay at your mom's place? Waterworks instantly cut off, back straightened up, lips pursed, kind of squinted at me like, you devil, you saw through my scam. I hate you. Window went up, threw it in reverse, backed out, gonzo. Um, and while she was gonzo, I noticed she had a Florida plate. And I was like, oh, yeah, sure. I'm sure there's a rental car company. <laughs> yeah, let me get on Enterprise and book a 2004 Toyota Corolla that has rust stains all over it. Um, and the ceiling fabric's falling out. Yeah. Um, again, victimhood. Like... I Here's the thing. If she just would have come up and said, hey, whatever the pitch was, just be honest. Hey, I'm poor. I need some money to pay the bills. I'm poor. I need some money for the food. I'm poor. I need some help. Fine. Bible says if someone asks for, Jesus says, if, if, you, if you give this person a, a glass of water in my name, hey, you know, you've glorified me. If they ask, give. If he asks for the um, what is it? If he asks you to go one mile with him, go another mile with him. If they ask for your shoes, give him the coat off your back too. I think that's what it says. Um, if they punch you in the face, turn the other cheek. I get this. There's there's this concept of being generous and and you know, hey, to freely you've been freely given things, so freely give yourself. Freely you have you received, freely give. I get all of these things, but when this when the when the angle is deceptive from the get go. I enjoy uh, messing with these people by asking them objective, logical questions. Why don't you just stay at your mom's? Instant waterworks shut down, and it was over. Um, and then as I was leaving the parking lot, she was circling back in, I think, to try to, the same strategy on the next unsuspecting car um, that pulled into the Outback pickup line. So funny stuff. And you go, well, those are just two examples of, of non-famous people. I still don't understand what you're talking about. And this is where we get to Naomi Osaka. When Naomi Osaka burst onto the scene back in 2018, that rhymed on the scene back in 2018. Wiki-wiki. Um, that was me freestyling. Um, and she beat Serena Williams. Actually, she won the, she won the um, I think it was Indian Wells. Yeah, I think she I think she tore through the Indian Wells draw. It was either Indian Wells or Miami. I'm pretty sure it was Indian Wells. She won the Indian Wells draw, and I had been following her for about a year prior, and I was like, oh man, I like this girl's game. She's got power coming out. Um, the wazoo, she just, I mean, she blisters the ball. She's got a cool attitude. I like her. Um, and so when she won the Indian Wells tournament, I was like, I knew this girl was going to be good. Sort of like, um, well, I won't get into other guys that I've followed who've turned out to be good, but um and then so she gets to the she gets to the u.s open final against serena and serena throws her big meltdown it wasn't a meltdown it was sexist it was racist no it wasn't she violated the the code of conduct in tennis and she suffered accordingly just like Djokovic got defaulted for hitting 
uh, person, a linesman with the ball, just like Jersey Janowitz got kicked out of Mexican tournament three or four years ago for flipping out and arguing, just like on and on and on and on and on. I've already talked about this at length. For anyone who, who if, if you're not familiar with how the code of conduct works in tennis, and you're not familiar with the default process, I think I've podcasted it previously, um, stop bumping your gums about, oh, it's sexist and racist, and maybe do some research. Agassi got kicked out for dropping a profanity in the second round of the Cincinnati Open in 1996. I could go on and on. Um, so 2018, US Open final, Serena Williams throws a temper tantrum. Um, she ends up losing the match to Osaka and the whole thing became about Serena. Oh, poor Serena. She's a victim. Eh, I'm gagging right now. I'm, I'm stuffing my finger down my throat and causing my uvula to get the gag reflex going. Um, and I thought Osaka handled it pretty graciously and you could tell she was timid and she was shy and she was a little uncomfortable. Who wouldn't be when one of the you know most successful players in the game in the history of tennis across the board of men's and women's when she loses and yet makes it about herself yeah how how are you going to respond to that i thought osaka did a pretty darn good job so she's haitian she's japanese from her her dad's haitian her mother's japanese and she instantly becomes a superstar in japan starts making tens of millions of dollars on endorsement deals um and not only a lot of people like that like sabine lasicki i think she made the final of 2013 wimbledon um, Sabine Lasicki, uh, the girl from Canada, Jeannie Bouchard, a lot of these girls who are athletic, um, and attractive and, oh, you can't say that you're a, you're a monster. Um, they succeed in a big tournament and then their performance really lags because who can blame them? They go off and they start making millions of dollars endorsing products. Like, I totally get it. Would you rather spend four to six hours a day grinding on the tennis court five days a week? Or would you rather go do a photo shoot, hold a sports drink or, you know, a, a sports watch or a tennis racket and get paid five million bucks? Duh. <laughs> so when Osaka won the 08, the 18 US Open, I thought, okay, she's going to go the route of Sabine Lasicki, Jeannie Bouchard. Um, Anna Ivanovich, you know, a lot of these, a lot of these people who did well in, in a tournament and then just fell off the face of the earth performance wise, because they went and they decided to make a career out of modeling and endorsing products. I get it. Um, but she didn't, she came back, she won the U S open again. She won the Australian open and she's, and she's really performing well on the court. Um, and then at Wimbledon this year, she withdraws, okay, um, because they want her to, no, it's the French Open, sorry, that the French Open, she withdraws because part of the agreement that the tennis associations have with their players is that you have to attend post-match interviews, um, imaging, press, tennis magazines, blogs, and newspapers, sports reporters, they want access to the players to ask them, hey, How'd you feel out there? You know, why did you hit that serve at that point? You know, what'd you think when you were down triple break point and you held, um, you know, blah, blah, blah. All of the small talk and chitter chatter that goes on after a match or any sporting event. 
So she says, hey, I can't handle the social anxiety that I feel, crippling social anxiety, crippling anxiety that I feel sitting through a 10 or 15 minute post-match interview, therefore I'm not going to do that. Well, the French Tennis Federation comes back, French Open people come back and they say, well, it's part of the agreement that the associations have with the players, so we're going to fine you, I think it was 10, 15,000 bucks each instance, um, and then if you persist, we may default you from the tournament, tell you that you're not welcome to play anymore, you're DQ'd. So she preemptively strikes and says, well, I'm withdrawing myself because I can't take the anxiety right now. I need to get my head straight and I need a break. Fine. At that point in time, fine. Like, great. You need a break. You need some some time to get your head straight, figure out who you are. You're, you know, what is she, 23 maybe, 24? She's world famous. She's an icon in Japan. You know, she's dealing with the the... She's dealing with the post-winning expectations, which as a tennis player um, who's played you know, tennis at a much lower level for 40 years, um, I get that. You, when, you, when you reach a certain level of, of performance, the pressure then at the next tournament going forward is even greater because you're actually having to uphold your reputation. There's a lot of pressure attached with that. In fact, one of my worst losses ever, um, I did extremely well at the Southwest Junior Open um, and went into the next tournament seated eighth, which was the highest I'd ever been seated at that particular point. This is 14 and unders, highest I'd ever been seated at a tournament up to that point. And I was a nervous wreck because when I got to the tournament and you saw the draw, this is way before internet, so you couldn't log on and see the draw you know, beforehand. They had a draw release night and you'd show up at the country club and they'd you know, unveil the draws and everybody go look at them. You know, I had like 15, 20 people. Oh, man. Hey, Muth, you're seated eighth. What an accomplishment. And I was like, hey, thanks, thanks. And on the inside, I was going, oh, crap. That means I actually have to make the quarterfinals now or better. Like, And it just jacked with me. I'd never had to deal with that before. Um, so I couldn't imagine. And that's just on a local, not a local, a regional junior tennis level, you know, where, you know, there was 120 kids in the draw. And it was 14 and under, so it's not even like college coaches or anybody else was at, even paying attention at that time because we're too young. But still, the pressure jacked with me. And I went out, and I was ner- a nervous wreck in the first round. And you know, I, I won like 6-3, 6-2, but it was clunky. I was nervous. I was making errors. I was didn't feel right. Went to the second round, same thing. You know, just out of sorts. Got to the third round, and I had one of my worst losses ever. I lost to some kid named Matt Cox. No offense, Mr. Matt Cox, wherever you are. Um, but he was unseated, and he beat me 6-2-7-5 in the third round, and I was a wreck. Um, and after I lost that match, I went into the Concies consolation draw and ended up winning, I think, four matches in the consolation draw and then lost in the, well, I think it was the semis or something of the consolation draw which was equivalent to like 10th place. So, you know, law of averages, I sort of, over the long haul of a tournament, sort of performed to somewhere in that eighth seed expectation. But after I lost that third round match, all of that pressure disappeared and I went back to playing without the expectation. So I say all of that to say I get, if you take that and multiply it by like 5,000, you're probably dealing with the expectations of being nationally famous in Japan, world famous, you know, everywhere you go, um, 
so I get it. And she's she's young. And so, hey, take the time off, get your head straight, figure it out, you know, talk to a sports psychologist, you know, talk to people who've been there before, dial up Chris Everett or Martina Navratilova or Jennifer Capriotti or, you know, people who've been down that road, pick the brain, find something that works for you. I get it. Well, then last week, out of the blue, out of the blue, I get a text from my son. She's like, he's like, hey, did you see who won female athlete of the year at the ESPYs? And I was like, no, because I don't care about really professional sports at all. I mean, I'm still holding on a little bit with tennis just because it's my sport. Um, and he was like, oh, it was Naomi Osaka. And I was like, what? And so, of course, I go online and there's a link to her acceptance speech. And I was like, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. You said that you couldn't handle the public spotlight and the pressure um, and all of this stuff being in front of people gave you social anxiety. And now here you are accepting female athlete of the year. Something's not lining up here. This is, this is starting to, uh, this whole pitch is starting to appear suspect. Why don't you just stay at your mom's house? Like it's starting to get into that realm. Like here, let me drive you to the tire shop. Uh, why don't you just stay at your mom's house? What's going on? So she gives this, oh, I'm so timid and afraid and anxious, but thank you for recognizing me. And I'm so happy that I can accept this award. With her rapper boyfriend there standing next to her on stage, I guess she's dating some rapper who presented her the award. I'm like, hmm, this something is highly suspect. <laughs> so then, maybe, maybe I'm getting the, I might be getting the order reversed. I think, I think that actually came second to her posting. It was big news story. Naomi Osaka was on the cover of Vogue magazine in Japan. And I was like, what? That's the record scratch. Wait a second. You have social anxiety. You, don't, you want to be out of the public spotlight. So you withdraw from the tournament because you don't want to answer 10 or 15 minute worth of tennis questions. And then you appear on the cover of Vogue magazine in Japan. And then you pop up and you accept Female Athlete of the Year award at the ESPYs, and I'm going, okay, something is clearly, clearly suspect here. And just before you think it couldn't get any more absurd, yesterday, Sports Illustrated makes the big announcement. Oh, we've unveiled our swimsuit edition cover models, Naomi Osaka. <laughs> and the entire narrative was, she's so brave. She's so brave. She's... She's on the cover in a swimsuit revealing her body to the world. She's so brave. And at that point, I was like, this chick is playing everybody. This girl is stinking giving Zoom lessons to that barbecue flat tire guy and the freaking my mom died and I need a place to stay woman. She's giving the webinar on how to stinking run a pitch perfect scam on a global scale. If you're really that crippled by all of the attention you're getting, you're not floating yourself onto the cover of Vogue Japan. You're not standing in front of, I, I know ESPN's viewership is down, but it's still gotta be a couple million people. You're not, you're not standing in front of a microphone in front of a couple million people accepting that award. And you're certainly not stripping down to your skivvies to freaking pose for a camera in seductive ways 
if you have crippling social anxiety from being in the public spotlight. Absolute 100% scam. And you go, oh, you're being so mean. She did all of that for free. Yeah, if you believe that, I've got oceanfront property to sell you in Rio Rancho, New Mexico. Sure, she appeared on the cover of Vogue for free. Sure, she has no financial benefits from accepting Female Athlete of the Year Award for the ESPYs. Sure, she wasn't financially compensated for not being on the cover of Sports Illustrated. And all of the residual that will come from that. And here's the thing. This is the thing. It used to be that the thing, the value, the currency that we traded in was overcoming those challenges. I've talked about David Goggins before on this podcast. If you don't know who David Goggins is, Google him, go on Instagram, find him. He was a poor youth, grew up in an abusive home. Mom was poor. Dad was abusive. Mom ended up leaving the dad. And it was him and his mom um, barely making ends meet. He was fat was out of shape, he was picked on. He didn't make a career out of sitting around and complaining about, oh, I'm fat and I'm poor and I can't control my appetite and I overeat and everybody picks on me and I'm 40 years old and I'm still bitching and moaning about that. No, he made a career of overcoming the victimhood. You see what's happening here? We we are taking something that is a socially beneficial thing, which is facing your challenges and overcoming victimhood. Yeah, I was a victim, but you know what? I worked hard. I took my lumps. I figured out how to to take action in the midst of some really bad, scary, frightening, unsafe circumstances. And as a result, I was able to move away from that environment of being a victim. And now I'm no longer a victim. We've completely flipped it on its head, though, with these millennial entitled Gen Z, Gen whatever they are, where elites making tens of millions of dollars a year are somehow able to play the victim. Do you understand how absurd and destructive this is? Because what you've done is you haven't inspired, Naomi Osaka has not inspired young girls around the world young individual girls around the world, I don't care what ethnicity, what country, she has not inspired them to look at whatever challenging circumstances they're in and work to overcome them. All she has done is incentivized them to somehow create a victim narrative where they currently are. And the absolute absurdity of being a multi-tens of millionaire and talking and behaving and living as if you are the world's greatest victim 
and you're able to get away with it, it's completely absurd. And the fact that we are glorifying that as a, as a culture is 100% stomach-turning disgusting. You're so mean. You don't understand mental health. Take your mental health and go deal with it privately. And once you've dealt with it, come back to the world and say, hey, here's who helped me. Here's what I learned. I'm in a better spot now. Avoid this. Don't do that. Do this. These are lessons I've learned. But we're not doing that. We're, we're letting people take us to the proverbial financial cleaners. And like I said, it's more valuable than stonks and crypto. You just have to come up with a victim narrative and the money will flow in. So I, I don't get it. I mean, I, I really am perplexed by it. And I can hear, you know, some people were critical of Naomi Osaka when she withdrew from the French. It was like, well, if you can't handle it, then, you know, go away. Um, and people were like, you don't understand the mental trauma. Oh, the mental trauma is so much. The pressure is so much. Like, I'm not diminishing that the pressure isn't there. All I'm saying is that if it's there and you need a break, take it. Don't don't circle back around within a month with a Vogue cover, an ESPY award, and a Sports Illustrated swimsuit cover. Within a month. And if you do do that, you better be swinging for the fences that, wow, I found some magical potion that in 30 days fixed all my social anxiety and I'm better and here's what I did. But that's not the story she's pitching. She's still pitching the... I can't deal with the, 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 all the eyeballs on me. It just makes me so uncomfortable. Well, then stop getting in a swimsuit and taking pictures at some exotic beach. I, I kind of want to say she's a gold digger. Oh, you can't say that. That's so sexist and rude and you're a misogynist. She's not, she's not necessarily gold digging in the traditional sense where you go after some guy with money. She's gold digging the culture. She has, she has found a way to enrich herself through this victimhood industrial complex that we've created. And for the life of me, I can't figure out why we've created it. I don't understand why we've created it unless it's part of capitalism's path of least resistance to, to money. I mean, it very well could be that, that for whatever reason, through the Teletubbies... <laughs> Oh boy, here he goes, looking at the last 25 years of kid entertainment. The Teletubbies, Barney, Thomas the Train, all this effeminate, whiny. Oh my goodness, oh, the Teletubbies, I need my safe space. I'm glowing. Um, <laughs> somehow, it has been ingrained as, as being okay to not embrace challenge and to not accomplish things and not overcome things. That somehow it's better to just sulk and whine and complain and we'll shovel you money. I do not understand it. And I think one of the reasons I feel so passionate about this at this particular point in time is I'm reading, I just finished Unstoppable. By It's a, it's a biography of Siggy Wilzig. And you go, well, who the heck's Siggy Wilzig? Siggy Wilzig 
was a Jewish man in Germany in the 30s who was imprisoned in concentration camps. He had 53, 54 of his relatives killed. He got off the train and instantly his mom, his elderly dad, his uh, two young siblings got peeled off into the gas chamber line. And he lied. They said, how old are you? He was 16. He said, I'm 18 and I'm a metal worker. He said he just felt like that instincts wise, he should just throw that out. And they said, go to this line. And they shoved him over the other side. And he spent two plus years in a couple of different concentration camps on 700 calories of rotting putrid soup a day working to stay alive. And he barely did. He, he endured beatings, starvation, exposure to the cold, uh, terrible death marches to different concentration camps. Um, I mean, the, all of the atrocities that you've heard about of the concentration camps in Nazi Germany, this guy went through, okay? And he got out of the war. The, the war ended. And what did he do? Did he sit around and start milking that? No, he went to work for the army, the U.S. Army, the Allied Army. Um, and I didn't know this until I read this book, but the, the Allies put together a, sort of a Nazi hunting organization, and they they employed concentration camp survivors to go around and identify um, some of the SS guards and soldiers and commanders and things um, who had perpetrated all these atrocities on mankind and or on the Jewish people on the, on the camp uh, inhabitants, prisoners, not inhabitants, that's a terrible word, the camp prisoners. Oh, I'm going to soundbite that. You called them inhabitants. I'm going to soundbite it and bring you down. A 1.3 second clip. Um, dude, stop soundbiting. So he does that for a year and a half, two years. The reparations, somehow Germany comes back and says, oh, we're going to pay all the, the, the reparations. We're going to give all the Jewish prisoner, prisoners for concentration camps like $1.45 a day for every day that they were in a concentration camp. I was like, what? Had no clue that that happened. He refused the money, was like, screw you. So he came to America, 200 bucks in his pocket. Maybe it was 400, I can't remember. I think it was two, two, two or 400 bucks he comes to America with after working for the army, tracking down Nazi officers, identifying them. And he makes contact with someone uh, who had immigrated from Germany in New York, who was a Jewish family who they knew. And he makes contact and through that relationship, he gets a job across the street, sweeping the sidewalk, making a couple bucks a day. He parlays that into a job working 16 hours a day in a, in a steaming wool pants and gluing soles on shoes, 16 hours a day, making 30 bucks a week. He takes that job to another person and says, hey, I, 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 he, he didn't like the, the glue fume. So he takes that to another company and says, hey, I wanna work for you. And they say, well, what are you making? And he lies. He says, I'm making 36 bucks a week over there and I won't take a penny less. And they said, great, you're hired. So he takes a 20% raise to go do some other job. He does that for a while and he meets somebody else who, who hires him to be a traveling salesman for 75 bucks a week. He uses that job to meet somebody who runs a, an electronics store and he becomes the manager of the electronics store and becomes a salaried manager. He starts living beneath his means and using his excess money to purchase stock in a struggling oil Canadian oil company, okay? He takes that money and continues to buy more stock and he gets enough and then he gets a, a group of investors together with family and friends, um, distant family because he lost 54 of them in, in the Holocaust. Um, so he gets them together, they get an investment group, they buy more stock. 
He goes to the board and says, hey, we own you know, a quarter of your stock at this point in time. You guys are doing a terrible job managing this company. I'm gonna, and you're gonna give me a, a seat on the board or I'm gonna pursue a hostile takeover of your company. They say, go pound sand, you Jewish immigrant. We don't need you. So he goes and he buys more stock. And then he comes back and he says again. So they end up giving him two board seats. Long story short, he ends up taking over the entire company. He acquires the whole thing, turns it into one of the most successful oil companies um, in the 60s into the 80s. Okay. In that same 20-year period, he decides, hey, I'm gonna, I want to have a bank as well. So he gets one branch in New Jersey. And over the course of 20 years, they expand it to a publicly traded company with dozens of locations all over New Jersey and New York. Um, and I'm reading that and I'm like, dude, if anybody, ha- okay, let's just, let's just play a game, a multiple choice test. Who has more reason to be a victim? Who has more reason to play the victimhood card? Naomi Osaka, multi-tens of millionaire, world-famous endorsement money, probably has 25, 35, 40 million dollars in the bank. Um, World-famous, Kush, wouldn't have to work. Or Siggy Wilzig, who comes to the country with 200 bucks in his pocket, maybe 400 bucks in his pocket, had to endure 53, 54 of his family members getting killed had to watch his family get carted off to the gas chambers, got beat senseless by the Nazi guards, um, lived on 700 calories a day of rotting cabbage soup. Um, I mean, let's play. Choice A or choice B. Who has more reason to be a victim? Clearly, Naomi Osaka. (laughs) Because... Because she just feels uncomfortable answering questions. <laughs> like do you, are, those are extreme examples. But do you, are you understanding the absurdity of what we're doing right now by elevating victimhood as being the most valuable currency to transact with? It's asinine. Every every word synonym that would go with absurdity, asininity, stupidity moronic, destructive, damaging, backwards, a complete reversal of, 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 of societal values that are going to be good for us. I mean, are you understanding this? Siggy Wilsig had every reason in the book to go around playing the ho-hum, woe is me, I'm a victim, the universe is against me, look at all these terrible things that have happened to me. Naomi Osaka has... In comparison, very few of those reasons. Yet, we're shoveling money. We're, we're backing the truck of money up to Naomi Osaka's door and shoveling it on her because she feels uncomfortable with all of the attention she's getting. And yet, Siggy Wilzig had to go work 16 hours. Didn't have to, chose to, probably both. Went and worked 16-hour days steaming wool pants and gluing shoes together. Parlayed that in, albeit deceptively, to get a 20% raise in another company. Parlayed that into a traveling sales gig for 75 bucks a week. Parlayed that into a managerial role at an electronics company. Parlayed that into living beneath his means and acquiring stock over the course of several years in order to eventually take over an oil company, which then inspired him to open a bank, which then multiplied. And both of them became publicly traded companies. Like, ay, 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 people. We are on a path to 
ruin. And I think it's this quote that's been floating around. My son sent it to me. I've seen it a few times. Um, that hard times create good men. Um, and good times create soft men or bad men. And soft and bad men create hard times. So I, I think we're in that cycle right now. You know, we, we talk, there's economics, there's this whole concept of a, of a business cycle. You have to understand that there's expansion, there's topping, there's, you know, consolidation and correction. And then there's another, you know, then you get into another uh, phase of expansion. I, I think we're in that. I mean, Siggy Wilzig went through hard times, which created good men. And Siggy Wilzig and company, they created good times. The good times created Naomi Osaka. And, and LeBron James, and you've only pointed out two people and their skin isn't white, you're a racist. Um, created Justin Thomas, a white golfer. Um, created, I mean, we could make a list here. We could make a list here that, Im, that covers all ethnicities. Because it's not a skin color issue, it's it's a it's a currency issue, and the currency with which we are transacting in. Juliana Zobrist for crying out loud. Who's that? Ben Zobrist, World Series MVP, 2016, played for the Rays, and then the Royals, and then the Cubbies. They were Christians. She was a like she had Christian singing albums and a Christian book. I just found out that there was a divorce filing this week, or I guess it happened last month, end of June. And they got a divorce because the divorce filing alleges, Ben Zobrist alleges that she, his wife, had an affair with their pastor of 15 years. I'm reading through this and I'm like, oh, this is disgusting. She's out there playing the victim card. Multimillionaire, wife of a, of a multimillionaire, living the cush life. You go back through their Instagram posts, which are surprisingly still there, and, you know, just living it up. Fancy houses, exotic vacations. She's playing the victim card. She's white. She's blonde. This isn't a skin color issue. This is a this is a values issue. And we are hard men. Hard times created good men and women, obviously. Those good men and good women created good times. Those good times are now creating soft individuals and hard times again. I really think that's what's happening. So maybe it's just the business cycle and we just have to uh, just roll with it. Um, but I'm, I still think we can fight against it. Like that, that just, it's just pure insanity. Um, and I, and I think you see that I was reading something, I forget the exact stat, but I think, I think during the pandemic, GoFundMe campaigns were up like 700%. Um, you know, and, and I think they said that a vast majority of them didn't even come close to meeting their goal. Um, because here's the thing, it's just like, I, I go back to this with the Incredibles and Syndrome. When everyone is special, then no one will be. And I think we're dealing that with this glut. We have a, we have a supply glut of victimhood. When everyone's a victim, then no one can be. I mean, if Naomi Osaka can be a victim, then who, what? Like if that's the <laughs> if Naomi if Naomi Osaka can be a victim, oh my gosh, soft. We are soft. Uh, what else do I want to talk about? 
I'll save these for a future episode. I got a Chantix Blast. Um, they just recalled Chantix after 16 years of being FDA approved. Chantix is recalled because they just discovered 16 years later that it has carcinogens in it. But rush out and get the vaccine. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't understand the logic of that. You hate the, the, the never Trumpers. Trump, Trump was the guy who fast-tracked the vaccine, and everybody was like, I'm not going to take anything that Trump took. And then all of a sudden, he's out of office, and it's like, everybody needs to take it. I'm like, dude, the, the logical consistency here is, is lacking. Um, and then, then, then there's some stock stories. I wanted to riff on Gab for a while, um, but I'll do that in another episode. I think we've sufficiently covered uh, 100%. No questions asked. Now you can ask as many questions as you want. This is clearly not 100% covered, but it is hopefully food for thought on why and how on earth we are we are valuing victimhood status more than stocks and crypto and hard work and character and it's baffling. It's we're living in an upside down world. Um, I wish the best to Naomi Osaka, but seriously, I don't really think that you're very sincere because, like I said, 30 days after that whole, I can't deal with the attention, you come out with three of the most attention-seeking, attention-grabbing, attention uh, platforms that there are in the society, Vogue, ESPN, and Sports Illustrated Swimsuit, like, not buying it just like uh just like the need a hotel room and need a flat tire I'm not buying it that's it mutonomics hope you guys are doing well look forward to doing this again soon send questions comments and angry hate mail to podcast at mutonomics.com if you don't know how to spell mutonomics just look at it in the itunes app and you will see m u t h O-N-O-M-I-C-S, muthonomics.com. Podcast at muthonomics.com. Peace.